0: All right, friends, please go ahead and turning your Bibles to Genesis 22 with me. You know what? I am already sweating. I tried, people. I tried. It's the first time I've ever tried to wear a jacket for you all, and it's not working out so good. So I'm going to put this right here, and we are going to continue without it. Please open your Bibles to Genesis 22 this morning. If you are a guest with us, uh, and if you don't have a Bible, the words will be projected on the screen for you. And if you are a guest with us, you should also know that as a church family, uh, we have been working our way through the book of Genesis in our Bibles. We like, as a church family, to preach exegetically through books of the Bible together, and we have been in Genesis uh, for a good while, and we will be in it till the, till the end of the year. Uh, so far in our study of the book of Genesis, we have seen the historical ava- account of God speaking this world into existence. We we have seen the historical account of the fall into sin by Adam and Eve, our first parents. And then we have seen the story of God's judgment against this world in the story of Noah and the flood. And in recent months, we have been studying the lives of Abraham and Sarah and their very long wait to have a son, a precious son, a son named Isaac who was the long-awaited fulfillment of God's promise to them. And just two weeks ago, in chapter 21, we saw this this promise come to fulfillment. Isaac was born, and Abraham and Sarah rejoiced. And so with this background, we now come to the shocking account of Genesis 22 this morning. Read it with me, beginning in verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. He said, behold, the the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham Lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now after these things, it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah also has born children to your brother Nahor, Uz his firstborn, Buz his brother, Chemuel the father of Aram, Chesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother, Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Ruma, bore Tabah, Gaham, Tahash, and Meacah. Amen. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning. Just two weeks ago, my my family, along with our good friend Jason, took down and burned a very large tree in our front yard. We've done this on a number of occasions, and we always enjoy the experience of seeing an entire tree reduced to ashes in just a few hours. But in order to do this, If you don't want to have large pieces of wood and branches laying all over your yard for weeks on end, you have to build a really big fire. And and the bigger the fire gets, the faster it consumes what you put into it. Again, we've done this on a number of occasions, and each time every member of our family participates. And we're all very careful. No, No one has ever gotten hurt. But the hotter that fire gets, the the, the brighter those embers become, the higher those flames reach, the more you become aware of the damage that could be done if something bad did happen. And two weeks ago, after a long day of burning, my son Nathan, whom I love with all my heart and all of his boundless energy, Nathan saw an ember fall out of the fire and he jumped towards it in order to put it out. It wasn't a big jump, but there was just something about the way that I saw it that that shocked me. I I think it was the fact that he jumped towards the fire. I think it was the uneven ground that he was jumping on. I think it was seeing his face move towards the embers that that caused me to yell out. I, I wasn't angry with him at all. He was actually trying to do a very good thing. But the very thought of him falling into those flames was enough to make me sick to myself. I physically and verbally reacted. I probably overreacted. But the thought of my son being burned in those flames was so repulsive to me. Folks, this text feels repulsive to us as well, doesn't it? Look at verses 1 and 2 again. It says that God tested Abraham and that he said to him, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. It feels repulsive. What, what kind of God would ask a father to sacrifice his son as a burnt offering to him? Is, is this God some, some kind of monster that he would require Abraham to do this? How, why would Abraham want to be in a relationship with a God like this? How, why would Abraham ever feel like it would be the right thing to obey a request like this? At first glance, Genesis 22 is is abhorrent to us. And it should be abhorrent to to us. We should want nothing to do with a God like this. But... As we study this text more deeply, what we begin to see is that this God who tests Abraham in this way and in this moment is actually a God of remarkable generosity and of deep and abounding love who never asks anything of his people that he himself is not first willing to offer to them. While God puts Abraham to the test in this moment, he provides Exactly what both Abraham and Isaac needs. He provides a lamb. He provides a substitute for Isaac. Abraham obeys God, but God graciously gives everything that Abraham needs in this moment. God proves himself to be the God who provides And he provides not just the sacrifice in this moment of testing for Abraham, but he provides through this sacrifice hope and provision for all of his people as well. Folks, here's the main idea for our message this morning. God has provided a lamb, and by that lamb a multitude of blessing for his people. God has provided a lamb, and by that lamb a multitude of blessing for his people we have three points this morning. Number one, a test of faith. Number two, a lamb provided. And number three, a multitude of blessing. Let's begin with the first. Point number one, a test of faith. Again, it is shocking to read the way that God tests Abraham here. Now, We know that it is a test because verse 1 says that it is a test. But in this moment, Abraham doesn't know that it is a test. He is simply given this command from God. God says, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love and offer him as a burnt offering. That's the command. And folks, God even seems to be rubbing in the severity of the command. Right? But by mentioning the fact that Isaac is his only son, God's highlighting that Ishmael, Abraham's other son, had already been taken away from him. We saw that two weeks ago in chapter 21. By mentioning the fact that Abraham loves him, God's highlighting the the relational bond and joy that Abraham had with his son. But by mentioning his name, Isaac, which was the name that God had told Abraham to give to his son, God is highlighting the fact that he is now requiring of Abraham the very thing that he had promised to Abraham. Friends, what is going on here? Why is God commanding Abraham to act in this way? Well, we know why. We know why God commands Abraham in this way, and we know why by looking down in verse 12. When after Abraham obeys and God stops him from actually sacrificing his son, God says this. He says, for now I know that you fear God. So all of this is a test to see whether Abraham feared God or not. But folks, what does that mean? Why does God want to make sure that Abraham fears him? Does Abraham, do do we really want to be in a relationship with a God who wants us to fear him? That, That doesn't seem like a healthy relationship for us. Is God like an abusive father who waves his belt around to make sure his kids know that he has power and control over them? Is that who Yahweh is? Well, no. Not at all. See, See, biblically speaking, the fear of the Lord is very different from our understanding of being fearful today. When, when God speaks of his people fearing him, it is not terror, it's not worry, it's not anxiety, it's, it's not being anxious about who he is or what he might do at any given time. No, to fear the Lord, biblically, is to worship the Lord for who he is. Biblically speaking, the fear of the Lord is a a wonderful mixture for the Christian of, of amazement and wonder and reverence and love and affection and devotion to God for who he is and how he is at work in our lives. To fear the Lord for the Christian is to worship the Lord as we should. Michael Reeves, in his new book on the fear of the Lord, entitled Rejoice and Tremble, he says this about the fear of the Lord. He says, the trembling fear of God is a way of speaking about the intensity of our love for and enjoyment of all that God is. Godly fear, listen to this, godly fear casts out being afraid, but neither is it a cool, passionless regard of God. It shows us that God does not want passionless performance or a vague preference for him. To to encounter the living, holy, and all-gracious God truly means that we cannot contain ourselves. He is not a truth to be known unaffectedly or a good to be received listlessly. Seen clearly, the, the dazzling beauty and splendor of God must cause our hearts to quake. Folks, that's what it means to fear God, to trust him fully, to to love nothing in this world more than him, to know that he is the prize of greatest value. He is the treasure. He is the pearl of greatest price. To fear God is to cling to him as as the end goal and the end purpose of our lives, He is all that his people want in life. He is what all his people crave every day. He is what his people seek to live their lives in worship towards. And so listen, with this understanding of what it is to fear the Lord, we begin to see a little bit of why this testing of Abraham was necessary here. See, God had tested Abraham before this point several times. We see God test Abraham back in chapter 12, back in chapter 15, chapter 17, chapter 20, and 21. God had tested and and proven Abraham's faith many times and in many different ways. But listen, he had not tested his faith since Abraham had been given his son. God had not tested Abraham since Abraham had been given the answer to his many years of prayers. A child, a son whom he loved. And so in that, we see what the test is really about. God is, is wanting to test whether Abraham will worship him as God for who he is or whether he will worship him only because of the good gifts that he gives. God is, is lovingly in this moment wanting Abraham to, by faith, release his greatest earthly treasure in order to have more of Christ. Would Abraham think that God's goodness was dependent on what he had in this life, or would he trust that God's goodness would remain true regardless of what he had in life? Folks, this is what saving faith in God is today. Faith in God is to believe that he is worthy of our affections. Him alone. Not, not his gifts, not what he can enable us to do, not what he can provide. Him alone. He is enough. He's the treasure. He's the pearl of greatest price. And so if we view Genesis 22 from a merely human perspective, it will make no sense to us. Abraham is asked here to behave in a way that is logically absurd, but... If we view this from a spiritual perspective, we realize that what God is actually doing here is the most loving thing that he could possibly do for Abraham and for his people. We realize in this moment that that Abraham is not a cruel monster. He's a, a gracious, loving father. Many of you know that 15 years ago I was diagnosed with cancer. It was a brutal cancer. It was destroying my body. It required extreme chemotherapy. It was painful. It was costly on a number of levels. But as a sick patient, waiting to be made well, wanting to live a happy and joyful and long life, listen, it would have made no sense for me as a sick patient to go halfway in on the treatment that was offered. It would have made no sense for me to tell the doctor that I really only wanted some of the treatment, but not all of the treatment. No, the doctors were faithful and good doctors to look at me and say, this is what is required of you if you are going to be made well. You must go all in, Joel. You must go all in on the pick lines and the blood transfusions and the chemotherapy and the shots and the bone pain and the nausea and the hair loss. There's there's no middle ground it would have made no sense for me to say, oh, doctor, no, I really want my hair. Can, can I keep that? So I, I refused the chemo. No, being made well required total commitment to what was required of me, and it was good of the doctors to say so. Folks, that's what is happening here. God is loving to Abraham in this moment, and God is loving to us in this moment. Th- think about it this way. If God wants us to be happy, and friend, he does, eternally happy, more happy, greater happiness than you've ever experienced, he wants that for you. And if that happiness comes from finding the treasure of greatest value, which is him, then God is beyond loving. He is both kind and good and generous to ask us to lay down anything that keeps us from experiencing him in that way right? God is actually kind and good to require total consecration from Abraham and even from us today. Why? Because he wants ultimate satisfaction, ultimate joy, ultimate happiness for Abraham, and he wants it for us as well. And so friends, let me ask you this question this morning. What do you need to lay on the altar? What are you tempted to cling to instead of to God himself? Maybe you are in a season when, when something that you cherish, something that you hold very dear is being torn away from you. Maybe, maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's your, your physical health. Maybe, maybe it's your, your finances. And maybe you just want to cry out, No, God, not, not that. Don't take that from me. But church. We must know this morning that no matter what is taken from us in this life, every area of lack, every area of disappointment, every area of trouble is actually an opportunity to fear God more, to know him more, to worship him more rightly, to be satisfied in him alone. He is the treasure of greatest value. Happiness is found in him alone. Nothing compares to him. His love is deeper than your family's love. The joy of his salvation is greater than the joy of that relationship. Communion and fellowship with him is more wonderful and more satisfying and more joy-giving than any other thing that you could desire apart from him in this life. And so sometimes it is a hard truth, but it is true nonetheless. Sometimes God graciously requires us to release what we think is best so that we can experience what he knows is best. Jim Elliott, the missionary who was killed by natives as he sought to preach the gospel of Christ to them. Jim Elliott is famous for saying these words, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Church, Christ is everything that we need. And as we release everything in this life that we idolize and worship apart from him, as we release it, as we put it back on the altar, he will graciously provide for all of our needs. And that brings us to our second point this morning. Point number two, a lamb provided. Friends, I hope that you see where this story is pointing. I hope you see what God is picturing for us here. Like so many other places in the book of Genesis so far, we see here not an old archaic story that has no relevance for our lives. No, we see real life events that God allowed to happen as a precursor, as a preview of a far greater work that he would one day do. This story clearly, explicitly points towards the gospel of Jesus Christ. It it gives us hope because the gospel imagery here is is not just implied. It's not just a shadow. It's it's explicit. It's bold. Look at it with me. Right? In verses 1 to 10, we have seen how God tests Abraham, and we see Abraham pass that test with flying colors. But now, look at verse 11. Just as Abraham is reaching out his knife to strike his son, God calls to him and he says, Abraham, Abraham. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. This is the gospel on display. Folks, think about all the imagery here. First of all, think, think about Abraham. Abraham in this story represents God the Father. God the Father who so loved the world that he gave his only beloved son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God the Father sent his only son to die in our place. Th- think about Isaac. You know, I actually think this story is almost just as much about Isaac as it is about Abraham. Because we know that Isaac is not a young child here. He is at least in his teen years, he's able to carry a load of wood for his father. Some would say he's at least 17 years old, maybe even older than that. Either way, Abraham by this point is an old man. And so do you think that Abraham would have been able to wrestle and bind and put on the altar a 17-year-old man? Doesn't doesn't seem so. And so this is as much about a statement of Isaac's faith and trust in God as it is for Abraham. Isaac represents Jesus, who in the agony of prayer before going to the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane also submitted to his father. Where Jesus said, but Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus submits to his father. Friends, we also see the gospel here when we consider where all of these events happened. If you noticed up in verse 2, it says that, that God told Abraham to sacrifice his son in the land of Moriah. Do you know where Moriah is? We learn in 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1, that Moriah is where Jerusalem would eventually be built. And specifically, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1 says, Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord, the temple in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. And so where all of this is happening in Genesis chapter 22 is where the temple would eventually be. This is where animal sacrifices would be offered for centuries and centuries to pacify the wrath and judgment of God. And church, this is where the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus would happen as he was killed on a cross outside the walls of Jerusalem. Centuries before it happened, God is giving us a picture through Abraham and through Isaac of when he would offer his own beloved son as a sacrifice. And friends, finally, think about the ram that was provided. This also is a picture of Christ. This ram that was found at the last moment in the bush. Just as Abraham was about to strike his son Isaac down, a ram is spotted. Isaac is then removed from the altar, taken down, placed aside, and this ram is bound and placed on the altar, in his place. I love those words. The offering instead of his son in verse 13. Genesis 22 is the gospel on display. Only listen, in the real gospel, the gospel that would come, the son that is put on the altar, the son that is put on that cross is not spared. The sword falls. The knife falls. Judgment happens. This is substitutionary atonement. Instead of death coming to us as we rightly deserve, a lamb, the lamb of God, takes our place and he endures the wrath of God so that you and I would not have to. This is what we celebrated on Friday night together. Again, this is why it is called Good Friday. Even though the cross is a horrible event, it is called Good Friday because it speaks of how Jesus took our place. It speaks of how a lamb was provided. Church, this weekend... Easter weekend, we, we join with Abraham in verse 14 where he called upon the name of the Lord and said, the Lord will provide. And we as the church say yes and amen. The Lord will provide and the Lord has provided. The substitute has been given. And it is through God's provision of his son in our place that we as his redeemed people have great confidence that he will provide for us in every other way as well. And that brings us to our third and to our final point this morning. Point number three, a multitude of blessing. This event, this event in Abraham's life not, not only proves that he had a right fear, a right kind of worship towards God, but, but this moment also reveals an essential belief that Abraham had about God. This test reveals Abraham's belief that God is a God of resurrection power. He believed that God is able to even raise the dead to life. And we see Abraham's belief in his resurrection power in several ways here. First of all, did you notice how quickly, how eagerly Abraham obeys he, he is commanded to sacrifice his own son in verse 2. And then in, in verse 3, it just says that he rose early in the morning. He, he didn't waste time. He didn't delay. He obeyed. He cut the wood. He saddled the donkey. He moved towards obedience without question. Folks, what kind of extraordinary faith is this? Well, it seems to prove that Abraham did this Indeed, out of fear and worship towards God. But, but it also seems to speak to the fact that Abraham trusted God in this moment to provide for him even in a miraculous way. He, he fully obeyed. He, he even raises his knife against his son. But he's able to do all of that, not just because he worships God, but because he believes a specific thing about God, that he has resurrection power. Did you notice what it says in verse 5? Verse 5, after the journey and after they arrive, he says to his two servants, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Other translations of the Bible explicitly say it as, we will return again to you. Abraham does not say, I and the boy will go over there and worship, and then I will come again to you without the boy. No, he said that they both would come back. Abraham seems to already believe, be believing that God will provide in some way, either from providing another lamb or through resurrecting his son from the dead. Listen, folks, we don't even need to impose this idea of the resurrection upon this text just to make it a good Easter sermon. That's not necessary. God's word states this explicitly. If you have your Bibles open, you can turn all the way to the New Testament, to Hebrews chapter 11 with me. Hebrews chapter 11 recalls this extraordinary moment of faith. And it says this of Abraham. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 to 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac, shall your offspring be named. Listen to this. The author of Hebrews is saying that Abraham obeyed in this way because he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Do you see This belief is what enabled Abraham to obey God in this way. He believed that God had the power to raise the dead to life, either immediately or at some point in the future. Abraham was was able to release his grip on his greatest earthly treasure, even his own child, because he knew that God could raise him from the dead, because he knew that the God of resurrection power would somehow be faithful to his promises. And Abraham... Church, Abraham is such an example to us in this. He's an example not just in his fear of God and in his immediate obedience, but he is an example to us of how to believe in the resurrecting power of God. Church, this sort of faith, this belief of God's resurrecting power, this is the fuel behind our faith as Christians. But belief in God's resurrecting power is the very center. It is the foundation of all that we are as the church. It is what enables us to believe and to walk by faith. It's what gives us hope and joy and sorrow. It's what increases our happiness despite the trials. The resurrection of Jesus is absolutely foundational to who we are. To believe that God has resurrection power like Abraham did To believe that Jesus is is no longer in the grave, which he is not, praise God. To believe that is to transform your entire existence in this life. Like Abraham, you don't need to cling to your earthly possessions. Like Abraham, you can release everything that you hold dear. In, in your life, you can, you can give yourself entirely to Jesus because you know that the one who has power over the grave is the one who has power to make your heart truly happy as well. We, we don't need to cling to the things in this life that we think make us happy. We don't need to put our hope in our, our physical health or appearance or our family, or our money, or sex, or our reputation. We don't, we don't need to put our hope in those things because when we release those things, when we put them on the offer and put, altar and put our hope in the one who left the tomb behind, then we have put our hope of happiness in the one who has power over all things and the one who will not disappoint. He can't disappoint. He's defeated death itself. What greater disappointment is there to overcome? He's already done the biggest job that needed to be done. He is the one who is able to give us all that we need in this life, in church, in the life to come. If Jesus is truly raised from the dead as we believe that he is, and friend, if you have doubts about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, I would love to talk to you when we are done here today. But if Jesus is truly raised from the dead, then he has power to lift your eyes above this world. He has power to set your happiness and your joy and your peace in something so much stronger than your earthly desires and your earthly treasures. Maybe most importantly, if Jesus has resurrection power, which he does, he has the power to give us joy and happiness despite all of the brokenness and all of the hurt and all of the loneliness, and all of the shame in this life. Maybe you are are burdened by shame. Maybe you have made some significant mistakes in your life. He has power to give happiness, and forgiveness, and ultimate joy, despite all of that. Whether we are treasuring the things of this world more than him or not, we all know what it is to to hurt and to be disappointed in this life, to feel shame about our mistakes. Our lives are filled with sorrow and shame and disappointment. Things have not turned out the way that we hoped that they would. But does that leave us broken and alone? Does that mean we're buried by our shame? Does that mean that we are still in the grave? No, his resurrection reminds us that there is more than this life to put our hope and happiness in and he invites us all to go all in with him to say together, we want all of you, Jesus, and to receive all that you have from, for us, Jesus. This is why, this is why this text continues on with God's final covenantal words to Abraham. These are the last words that God will speak to Abraham, and, and he says to Abraham in verse 17, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring. Down in verses 20 to 24, we read what, what seems to be a, a random list of descendants, of, of Abraham's brother, Nahor. Down in verses 20 and 24, we read this list and then right in the middle of it, it says as a parenthetical statement, Bethuel fathered Rebekah. Is that a throwaway thought? Is that just an unimportant verse? No. Rebekah is Isaac's future wife. It's a hint that God would now begin to fulfill his promise of a multitude of blessing to Abraham and to his descendants. God's resurrection power guarantees this multitude of blessing in our lives, church, because it guarantees that nothing in this world, not even death itself, can stop God's desire to satisfy us with himself. His purposes will be accomplished in our lives. Friend, listen, let's together today believe with Abraham that he has resurrection power. Let's believe with Abraham that our God is the God of resurrection. Let's believe that he is the treasure of greatest value and that we can live our lives fully for him. We, we don't need to worship money. We don't need to worship our families. We don't need to worship our careers or even our own logic or our relationships. You don't need to worship your house or your car or your political heroes. You don't need to worship any of that. You can put all of that on the altar. We can offer it all to God, and as we do, we will see yet again and again and again that he is the God of resurrection power, able to satisfy us regardless of what we have in this life. Trusting him will bring the fullness of joy.